Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Here we are, City Limits. Uh, Kevin Healy, Mark, uh, Mark Allen's over there. Good morning. And Lynn Drummond's pressing buttons here today. Lynn, uh, welcome to uh, Pressing Buttons. And Andy's, uh, Andy's in the studio as well doing, he's also pressing buttons and doing strange things. Yes. It's, um, it, it's a fourth Wednesday of the month today and we've got uh, John Passant, our um, regular or irregular, perhaps a regular, regular or irregular, regular yes. commentator on economic issues. Um, and I know we get a lot of requests from people asking when John's coming on, so for those who've been requesting... Today's the day. We're going to talk about. We'll, get, we'll kick off with. There's two issues in the in the news at the moment that we will talk to John about up front, but we might go on to other things as well. But we'll certainly talk to him about the so-called affordable housing crisis because mm. I'm sure he'll have some thoughts on that. And the other one, of course, is also the energy crisis and uh, and the and the pricing and and availability, etc. Of, but I'm sure again he'll have a few thoughts on that one. A crisis as well. being an in inverted commas, of course. Um, well, yes, it's a crisis that. Well, he might suggest it is a crisis emanating from the economic system, of course. Well, yeah. Well, he that, might not. I mean, we, we, yeah. we, we don't want to preempt what he's going to say, do we? No, we shall wait and see <laughs> well, what he says. Well, we certainly will. Um, speaking of those sort of markets, etc., um, we I noticed this week there's a story now that cobalt, which is normally um, normally just a side thing from other mines, but now it's become incredibly expensive. It's at 50,000 a tonne because it's now able to be used in computers and things. Apple have started to use a lot of cobalt. So it's become... But one of the places where they've been mining it is in the Congo. And um, I point out it's selling at $50,000 a tonne. Now, Apple, as usual, when some of these questions are raised, they're... um, they were criticized. They, Apple was criticized for sourcing its supplies from uncontrolled mines in Congo, along with security issues in parts of that country, that have raised additional questions over the security of supply. Apple has said, and they always say this, and I think you've got to commend them for it. When they realise the problems, they, they they address them immediately. Apple has said it will tighten control over its purchases of cobalt to avoid both child labour and harsh working conditions. It's awfully decent of them. It is. Although it has also said it wants it wants to avoid causing too much disruption to the miners who need the income. So the child You've got to get a balance, haven't you? Kevin? The child labour <laughs> and harsh working conditions. Apparently, they love it because they get the income. Still, fifty thousand a ton. Maybe they can afford it. You know, sort it out somehow. You communist, um, get out! <laughs> I'm going to pour myself a tea. What's the tea today? It's uh, Chinese white today, uh, and it's uh, very nice. Now you know you've got a cup, Linda. You want a cup? Are you right there? Oh, I've had mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read an article recently about the impact that mobile phones are having on the environment in terms of the working conditions on people mining the the rare metals for mobile phones, and mm. so. 
There's so many second-hand mobile phones out there sitting in people's drawers, so I, I, I'm putting it out there to people like, do you really need to upgrade your mobile to the latest model? I've, I have an old phone, but it's going to die in about one month time because the 2G network is closing down, so oh, I've got to well, try and get another second-hand one. I've never upgraded to even the first model. You're retro. That's right, absolutely. Yes. So yeah, there yeah. you are. Um, anyway, um, a couple of um, women whom we admire, because this month is International Women's Day this month, a couple of women we admire in the Liberal Party, and we all we all recall during the, the election which Abbott won, uh, a woman called um, was it P- P- Fiona Scott, who held the seat of Lindsay, she lost it in the last election. Oh yes, but she was the woman whom Ab- whom Abbott on the on the trail um, described as having sex appeal. Remember that, and I it do. caused a bit of a furor at I the do. time. Yeah. Now she lost her seat, and finally she's come out and she says that that didn't help her at all. She's now admitting that. Uh, she said that a lot of her colleagues in Canberra didn't take her seriously because of the description. Uh, which offended her, which offended her close female relatives. To be sexually objectified really upset my mum. She said, um, but I think it just goes back to that. That even though at the time he claimed it was just a throwaway line, that uh, even the woman who was uh, who was mm. described as is now saying she was objectified by yeah. that. Which is, it just goes to show that people yes. have to sometimes leave politics to say what they really think as well. Yes, and this is a man, of course, who um, who knows what women want. Like they don't want abortions, or they certainly shouldn't have them. For instance, well, he was a minister for women. That's right, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. So he would know, yeah, for that reason alone. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting that. But Come thank, on, Kevin, sort it out. <laughs> thanks for pulling me in the line. That's all right. That's, very good That's the one. Uh, the, uh, the other one uh, is, of course, Julie Bishop. We mentioned Julie last week how she talked about America having to take more responsibility in the South China oh, yes. Sea and around China and how China was a major threat, etc. Um, and she said, uh, she claimed that, um, she, she said, uh, warned of the growing threat posed by China, especially the territorial ambitions, um, which the United States, of course, wouldn't have by coming over this part of the world. No, not at all. Um, if stability, and she said the US, in fact, we need, we need a country running, you know, here, the strong power that doesn't bully other countries, as we made that point last week. Well, the United States would never dream of bullying anybody. Never. Just invade them, go in and take it. Uh, well, surprisingly, um, China's reacted. No. No, yes, hard to believe. But, um, yes, the uh, a, a bloke from the China Institute of International Studies, uh, Wang Zhenyu, he described her uh, comments um, as unacceptable and arrogant. The mm. arrogant finger pointing is not the East Asian way, which Australia is yet to learn in its, uh, in its course to sail into the Asian century, he said. Uh, he said a use of the non-democracy label was an attempt to isolate China from the regional community. The stereotyped mindset of the Australian government in managing its relationships with East Asian countries, including China, has not been changed. This is the fence that Australia has built for herself, and nobody can help her if she does not realise the need to break it, etc., etc., etc. So, well, yeah, it doesn't surprise been a reaction. So Julie's doing a good job. It must be frustrating to be in the government because, on one hand, we're so reliant upon China. For our economy, and on the other hand, we have no government that so wants to lean on the United States, which is a sort of foreign policy of being anti-Chinese. So it's a difficult one, isn't it's it? A paradox. It's a difficult one. A lot of those um, rare metals you were talking about, of course, are mined in China too. Yeah. So yeah. that's a further problem, isn't it? Ah. Oh. Oh, heap of problems. We, we could be here for hours. Problems go well in one hour because we've only got to. We, we need a yeah. longer show. We if need we to, don't, yeah. we'll, we'll talk Joe to will, Joe. Joe will come in and leap all over us if we don't. Yeah, <laughs> right. um, you might recall that uh, Chris Corrigan, the um, who was the 
the villain from our point of view of the maritime dispute who brought in the balaclavas and the dogs and the training, tra- training trained killers to be scabs in Dubai, etc. Um, he, of course, uh, in more recent years, has run a company called Cube Ports, which is now again one of the big, uh, and it's, it in fact, ironically, uh, swallowed up Patrick sometime in the last year or so. Uh, but it uh, is one of the big maritime, one of the big stevedoring companies here in Australia. Well, um, recently they tried to get workers to take a 12% pay cut because, um, you know, Chris always knows what's needed for productivity in this country and he, he's very good at it. Um, they needed to accept a 30-hour week, which resulted in a 12% pay cut and the workers weren't all that happy with that. Uh, and one of them, a bloke who'd worked on the wharves for 30 years, 30 years, um Put on a Facebook page in a Facebook post. He actually, um, and this is terrible. He called Chris Corrigan a pig. Mm. Isn't that disgusting? Calling mm. Chris I'm Corrigan. Sure, a pig. Chris was very upset. Oh, well, he got sacked for that. Did he? Uh, yes, sacked after thirty years for calling. For Chris calling a him pig. a pig. Calling oh, him a pig. Yeah. Crikey. And it turned up before Deputy President Reg Hamilton, um, not one of the more radical members of the Fair Court Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work. No longer work choices, just looks like it, Commission. Yes. Um, and um, Reg, um, decre- Reg decreed it was a sackable offence, he said. Uh, he said that uh, he did not need to determine if the post was a valid reason for dismissal. I would, however, have come to that conclusion in the circumstances. It's a serious matter for an employee to publicly or semi-publicly call the chairman of the company a pig. <laughs> well, a sensitive uh, lot, I they? don't think any worker would ever call their boss a pig. Never. No, it's no. never happened. Which no. is a rude and derogatory term. Yeah, we didn't know that. Carrying with it some contempt mm. and hostility. Well, that's why he put it there, for Christ's sake. So calling um, for a pay cut is okay, but calling someone a pig isn't Yes, okay. and, yeah. and sacking the worker isn't uh, being disrespectful. No, that's right. Um, yep. Cube's social media policy requires employees to be polite and respectful in all communications and not to damage Cube's reputation, he noted. This post is inconsistent with that policy. Um, but he went on to say, um, he went on to say, and this is the bit I really enjoyed, he, he said, he said Loke had 30 years service and now you know, had another job, but he's getting much lower pay because he's not working where he was. And Hamilton also said he, he also appeared to show a less than respectful approach to management and to management policy. One would expect better after 30 years of, of employment. And I would have thought after 30 years working for people like Corrigan, you'd expect nothing less. Well, exactly. I mean, I think he should be commended for his restraint. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. He, got, he, got scra- he got sacked for that, calling Chris Corrigan a pig. After 30 years, it just goes to show. Yeah. God, you can't put one foot wrong, can you? No, no. <laughs> or, or one finger, as it turned out. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or three fingers, whatever fingers you need to buy PIG. <laughs> yeah, so there you are. Our pigs have Edward. a bad reputation. If you'd called him a nice fluffy possum, he'd have got away with it. Um, yes, yes, he, he probably would. Uh, um, but then again, you know, it's company policy, but you can't insult them, so therefore you... Can't insult them. You can't insult them. No, no and no. you've got to you got to do nice things to uh, to help the company. You do. Yep. And if they so and if they call for a pay cut, you just have to take it on the chin. Yeah. Yeah. We have John coming onto the line. I'm sure, we hopefully do. Hopefully now. And just before we we go to John, I've got a little piece I want to read that appeared on the um, appeared online this week, written by a bloke called Alan Taylor, a poet. Um, I think he, with due reference to. 
to Banjo. But anyway, I think it's worth reading because it also probably leads into John in some ways. There was movement at the station for the word had passed around that the dolt from Piper's Point had got away <laughs> and had joined the wild bush lawyers. He was worth two billion pounds, so all the crooks had gathered for the spray. All the tried and wily rotters from the troughs both near and far had muscled in already overnight. For investors know exactly where the easy dollars are, and they snuffle smelling truffles with delight. <laughs> so, good on you, Alan Taylor, for writing that one. Uh, there you are, John Passons on the line. John, um, John, of course, our regular, irregular commentator on economic issues, and as we keep saying, a former Assistant Commissioner for Taxation with the emphasis on former. Um, John, before we... I want to talk about both the housing affordability question and the energy issue at the moment and see whether there's any economy economic issues involved with those um which you'll be able to tell us i'm sure but just firstly last week um when they were the reserve bank lowers interest rates the banks seem very slow to to take it up they seem much faster when they raise them in fact they almost preempt it um and yet there's been no raise or, or increase or decrease here, but last week the American Fed, Janet Yellen, increased interest rates and our banks immediately increased interest rates here. And I'm having some trouble understanding how that could happen. Can you explain that to us? Um, I think it's explained by two words, price gouging. Uh-huh. That, uh, <laughs> the banks have, have a... The, the big four banks have a virtual monopoly of the Australian house lending market, and they uh, know that they're in a position to be able to, they think, gouge more out of um, people who've uh, purchased their homes through them or investors who've got loans with them. And so they think that they can raise, without any problems, their base uh, baseline um, interest rates by whatever it was, point. Uh, two of a percent or two five percent, I think, mm. from NAB, and the others followed quickly. It's an interesting point, isn't it? When the housing prices, or sorry, when interest rates fall as a consequence of the Reserve Bank making a decision to cut interest rates because the economy is too sluggish, the banks are very slow in passing that on. But here we have a rise overseas in interest rates, which has some impact on banks in Australia in the sense that their lending costs go up a little bit. But, um, you know, what are the profits that the banks are making at the moment? Record profits for Commonwealth Bank and and other banks uh, recently. So um, they could bear the extra cost of a few million or a few tens of millions. But they pass on this extra cost to the rest of us because they are basically in a monopoly. Now, I'm not arguing that more competition will solve the problem because Keating tried that back in the 1990s with foreign banks allowed into Australia, but it didn't work, um, uh, partly, well, for a whole range of different reasons. But uh, this question of interest rates is tied into wider issues of housing affordability and so forth, which I'm sure we'll get on to in a minute. Yes, in fact, um, on the banks... Uh just just before we go off the banks, um, we noticed there was a we needed a full um, Royal Con, Royal Con mission, in fact kangaroo mission into the uh, into the unions because there were there was thuggery etc. But uh, just in the past week or so, there's been a headline front page headline in the Fin Review: Commonwealth Bank of Australia has been cleared of systemic problems in its life insurance business. Commonsure with a report by Deloitte finding it did not have a culture of deliberately avoiding or delaying claims, and they were. They were um, 
they were being charged with doing all sorts of things, pressuring doctors, refusing to pay people, um, and out-of-date definitions of medical conditions, etc. But the Deloitte report said they did nothing wrong, nothing systemic. They, in fact, commissioned the report themselves, um, and yet the the, the headline says, and the story says clearly, they were cleared. Is, is that really clearing them? Yeah. Um, just on that point, the, the Deloitte commissioned your own report and says you're okay. Is that the, really the way to do it? Oh, I think it's clever politics on the part of the bank to be able to introduce uh, an independent person, so-called independent person, and then suddenly turn around and uh, say, oh, we've been cleared, we've been cleared, when in fact the reality is you get what you pay for and... Um, Deloitte's know full well uh, that their report is, is is going to have to be more or less subjective and praising of the, the banks. So I think the point here is that a Royal Commission would have exposed the underbelly of all of the banks and their their view of their customers as nothing but, but automatic teller machines from whom they can withdraw various amounts of money and that the reserves... Uh, a Royal Commission might have well... Uh, pointed out the whole nature of the treatment of borrowers, lenders and so forth by the banks um, and the systemic abuse of their customers that I believe occurs because of their um, position in society as the basically the only providers of finance for housing mm. and the, their attempts to dominate the life insurance uh, areas. Um, this life insurance stuff, uh, I used to have life insurance with the Commonwealth Bank and I ended up getting rid of it because it just wasn't cost-effective in my view. And the reason it's not cost-effective is, again, because they're attempting to gouge people like you and me um, in this market and they'll do so in any way they can. So even if they don't have specific instructions to say, uh, <laughs> let's, let's delay claims and let's fight every claim and so forth, people who work in, in that sector know that they have key performance indicators to meet and that they'll be shafted if they don't meet them. So how are they going to meet them? They're going to meet them by screwing you and me, the ordinary customers. So I think a Royal Commission into the banks would have been a very good start to analysing the, the nature of the banks in our society and how they are basically price-gouging their consumers like you and me. Mm. Well, let's hope that Royal Commission happens if there's a change of government in a couple of years' time. Yes, I think it presents problems for the Labor yeah. Party to oh, keep doing yeah. that. Yeah. You know, that, that we see see what the mining industry does to any politician who stands up to them and, and attempts to get a little bit of money out of them through taxes. So we find the MRRT, the Minerals Resource Rent Tax, and it's and the destruction of the Labor Party in 2012 13. Mm-hmm. And of course, through they, that, and of course, yeah. Brendan Grills in, yeah. um, yeah. in Western Australia, yes, where yeah. the Nationals kept their vote. But he lost his seat because he was the main proponent of a royalties tax on on miners, which would have gone back to the regions in which the miners were operating. And they spent, I think, $5 million in unseating him in Western mm. Australia. It's ironic, mm. isn't it, that when a member of the National Party actually says something that's half decent, they lose their seat. Yes, <laughs> and that must be a warning too for Labor, which is why Labor in Western mm. Australia didn't go along with that plan, as I, yes. I understand it. So. Um, And taking on the banks is a very, very, very hard task because of their uh, their power within society. So the Labor Party, let's see uh, when they get elected, I think in 2019, whether they'll be able to implement uh, a thoroughgoing Royal Commission into the banks. Um, 
We'll, we'll see. It's a powerful institution. Mm. Set of powerful institutions they're taking on. We shouldn't underestimate, uh, underestimate, underestimate them. the power no. of the banks. Yeah. And I wonder whether we'll see a campaign by the banks against the Labor Party, similar to the miners against the Labor Party and against Brendan Gruels in uh, Western Australia. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They brought him down. But um, while we're on um, on banks, of course, the, the housing affordability issue, it's currently in the news and the government's coming up with all sorts of solutions, including people using their super grants to all sorts of things. Every solution they come up with is a solution in the private sector. The whole question of public housing seems to have dropped totally off the agenda, John. Uh, yes, it's one of the points I was going to raise when I was thinking about how how to discuss uh, housing affordability in Australia. I was looking at some figures that showed that um, from the period about 1990 to today, um, CPI has basically doubled. If you take a base and set it at 100, the CPI increases up to just under 200 and wages increase will be slightly above that because real wages over that period of time have increased slightly. So perhaps 220 on a base of 200. Yet housing prices are 500. So they've increased fivefold where CPI has only doubled over that period of time. And if you look at what's been happening in the housing market since, you know, the 70s, one of the major players in the housing market, the state, establishing housing commissions in New South Wales, for example, has actually pulled back from doing that and has basically privatised the whole of the housing market. So you've got Mm. immediate short-term issues of increased demand and lack of uh, adequate supply, but that lack of adequate supply is built in part on turning it over to the market to enable the supply of housing to ordinary working-class people, and that means moving away from uh, a provision of social housing by the state, which we used to have. And indeed, Menzies had an interesting argument about this. He thought that uh, things like housing commission houses were a great uh, opportunity because they actually embedded working-class people into the capitalist system. They gave them ownership of a small amount of property, which they saw as theirs, and so that they wouldn't question the system itself. So there might actually be a very good capitalist reason for arguing for um, increased state intervention in the housing market through um, a housing commission-style approach of building houses that are affordable for ordinary working people. But, of course, that doesn't detract from the main reason for building housing for ordinary working people that is affordable, and that is <laughs> that they need somewhere to live so, mm. so, so that they can survive adequately under capital. That, that, the, that in fact, the right, you know, the right to a roof over your head ought to be a basic, and it must be a basic human right. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, yes, absolutely. That What you, you should be saying is, I have a right to housing, I have a right to an adequate income, I have a right to... Uh, adequate health care, and then we can talk about a right to it, and, and then, um, uh, and of course, a right to a job. But mm. um, the, the ba- one of the basics, obviously, in capitalist society should be the demand that what we have to have is housing for all. Uh, if mm. you look at the um, housing affordability issues, what we're doing is seeing people being pushed out of the capacity to buy houses, which means they have to start renting. And of course, renting rental prices are determined you know, by the cost of investors and the need of them to borrow and how much they have to borrow and the interest rates. So um, the demand for housing is reflected in increased rental prices, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. So you're finding a move out of Sydney to uh, further and further away from 
from from centres of employment and so forth to cheaper and cheaper rental and cheaper and cheaper housing. But even so, the trend there is still that the demand is increasing, so the cost of housing is going up, even in areas that are far removed from the place of work. So I, I visit Wollongong quite frequently mm. to, to see my dad, and the cost of housing in Wollongong, because it's, it's only massive. an hour and a bit away from yeah. Sydney, it, Wollongong is the third most expensive property area in Australia. Mm. Now you think, but hang on, Wollongong has one of the highest rates of unemployment yeah. in Australia That's right. uh, because of the closure of the various uh, mm. steel and coal factories and so forth. And you think, hang on, what's going on here? And it's because people are moving from Sydney down and down and down into mm. some of the prime areas in Wollongong. Absolutely. So, and it's the same um, with Newcastle as well. Newcastle's very expensive now. Yes, and it's, what, two hours, an hour and a half by train from Sydney. So That's you're right. finding that and the western suburbs and uh, the Blue Mountains are now becoming areas. So I think one of the solutions here has to be thinking about going back to a social housing program that we say, look, the state has to step in and start building. But, of course, the problem with that is the market is now so distorted. As I said, the cost of housing over the last uh, 30, uh, 26, 25 years or so has increased fivefold, whereas the CPI has only doubled. How do you address that? And I think the answer is you've got to go more than just providing so-called affordable housing because even building housing commission homes around Sydney is going to cost a fortune because you've got to buy the land itself when the, the, the current market is just so expensive. So you start to have to think about backfilling and then you start to think about taking over properties and double and, 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 and multiple storey and buildings and so forth. But even then, the market rules. You look at what's happening at Milton's Point in Sydney where people who've lived there for 40 or 50 years are being thrown out because it's better for the government to sell the property to developers than, than to let people who've lived there for 50 years continue to live there on um, rents that are controlled. So, oh, I've got that in front of me, actually, and I was going to raise Miller's point with you. Yeah, I mean, they sold, just an article this week, they sold five properties for $25.5 million. Uh, yeah. And I used to stay in that area, and it's absolutely beautiful public housing. Now it's all been sold, of course. Even then, you you saw the developers drooling as they walked up the street. Um, but the government's argument is, oh, by selling this public housing, we can afford to put social housing somewhere else. But if you've already got it, what's the what's the point? Well, I think there are two issues there. People who have the social housing who are now being moved out of there, they've lost their... Uh, established networks of uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Exactly. They now um, lost their relationships with all those other people. And, of course, the cost of moving them is going to be higher and has to be recouped. So they've lost their regulated rents that were, they got with when they were staying in Millers Point. And the other thing is, of course, what you're saying is, well, you know, your capacity to look out over a harbour view or the sea mm. depends on how much money you've got. And we're taking this view away from you mm. or this area away from you because you don't have enough money. Mm, well, I yeah. think the answer to that is bugger it, keep them there. Um, and I think the second point is that the government, of course, will do a first of this. Oh, we've got all this extra money to spend on social housing. Well, where are you spending it? What are you doing? And they're not actually increasing the spending on social housing because they're leaving it up to the market to provide mm. social housing in the main. And uh, so that's just doesn't work, um, especially in the crisis of affordability that we've got at the moment. What the Reserve Bank is now talking about as a housing bubble, where 
you know, the cost of housing in Sydney, the median house price in Sydney is, what is it, $1.3 million or something? Mm, they're about somewhere, $1.3 yeah, million. Dollars. And, house, and real wages are falling in, in Australia, across Australia at the same time. People are underemployed and unemployed on top of that. It just doesn't make any sense. A lot of people would say, how is the government going to afford to pay for a large public housing program? But you've said in the past, John, that a super profits tax on the banks would, would go some way towards paying for that. Is that right? Well, not just... Yes, that's right. I think that you, if you look at the banks at the moment, they're earning super profits. Their rate of return on investment is around 16 or 17 percent, which yeah. on any judgment is a is a super profit. Now, what they'll do if you did impose a super profits on the banks is try then and increase that the, the recoup that extra tax that they're paying from their customers. So you'd also have to start to talk about introducing some controls over banking pricing. And that leads on to, well, if we're going to control bank prices, why are we controlling rents as well? Which all the states have the capacity to do, so... Mm. Maybe that's another point in the issue, in the in the discussion about rent control, and on top of that, you know, and it's not just the super profits tax. We could impose a net wealth tax on yeah. the Gina Reinhardts of the world. Yeah. A one percent net wealth tax would it bring in on the top ten percent? My estimates were I don't know three, four, ten. I can't remember the exact figures. Three or four billion a year, four, five, or six billion a year. Then you increase your income tax rates on the super rich instead of cutting them as. Malcolm, Malcolm Turnbull did the other day. A um, mm. whole range of different taxes, and of course the capital gains tax and the negative gearing, which do have some impact on housing affordability. Mm. You could oh, absolutely, as well. yeah. I mean, in fact, there was a report from the Planning Institute of Australia just a few days ago saying that the whole supply issue is is over exaggerated, and that we we do need to be looking at the negative gearing and the capital gains concessions as well, and yeah. um, and that. That seems to have, obviously the government don't want us to talk about those issues, but they have to be on the table as well, surely. Oh, absolutely. And it, uh, the question of capital gains tax, for example, the government changed the rules to about capital gains tax in 1999, so that what you now do if you hold a property for longer than, if you're an Australian resident, if you hold the property for longer than 12 months, any gain, you only include half the capital gain. When the government did that, there was an explosion in um, investors investing in housing in Australia. That and the negative gearing benefits just saw an explosion in 19, from 1999 mm. onwards of, of, of investors in the market. So that in Sydney and Melbourne, the figures are, depending on which quarter you're talking about, but they're roughly about 25% of all of the investors in the housing market in Sydney and Melbourne are um, are housing uh, are investors, that is, people who are buying to rent the property out. And the question becomes, well, <laughs> if that's the case, is that creating a, a, a housing bubble? I think the other issue here is not just the question of um, this question of investment by investors in the market. I think it's also that uh, there are, in Sydney and Melbourne perhaps, supply constraints, which can be addressed by having a program of community housing, of social housing that I talked about before. And, of course, rent controls then, on top of that, would also persuade some investors to sell their properties and move out of the market. The problem that the governments, the capitalist governments have, of course, is, is that any attempt to slow down investment in the market 
or to lower the rewards that banks and other investors will get through the through the housing bubble at the moment might create a, a, a collapse of the bubble. That is, the prices will fall. So that those people who now have $1.3 million invested in a property might see that that property then ends up at a $1 million, which most of us would say, well, that was the risk that they take. But what about people who've just bought into that market who are ordinary working-class people? They're going to be impacted by this. So there's a problem for for capitalist governments and how to address this particular issue because they want to slow down the market but they don't want to force the market to collapse to more affordable levels. So mm. it's a balancing game for them and I think the answer is social housing. Let's build um, community housing through um, state yeah. intervention. And owned by the, owned by the, the, rich and owned by the state because we're seeing here in Victoria that so much, not only they're not providing more public housing, most of it they're giving away to what's called social housing groups but they're actually uh, private groups that are running them and we uh, would yeah. argue that they should still stay in the hands of the public sector. Well, yes. I think that's an important point too that a lot of the social housing that we've got is actually private enterprise under the guise of social housing. I did mean the state, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, again, you've got a problem that the state itself is a separate institution, which is not really you and me, but of course it's subject to greater pressures from you and me and ordinary people, and state ownership is a better, a better answer to this. But I'd have another solution as well, which is that people who buy state housing over a period of time can own that property, um, that... Uh, or that they pay long-term secure rent, which means that effectively they have ownership of that, mm. that house for their lifetime that they live in it. So, yeah. And you can come up with models. The European model is one of basically ownership for life. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's not rocket science, but of course the problem is that as soon as you start saying these sorts of things about the solution to housing affordability, uh, you challenge the preemptive ideas of the market and that means it's a no-go discussion area in Australia. As, as you say... Labor and Liberal government. Yeah, as you say, I mean, as you hinted earlier, there's no way this government are going to allow house prices to decrease because there are too many people who've got money invested in property, including too many government ministers. So the only <laughs> real way that we can actually get affordable housing is through public housing. Is not going to happen. The whole idea that we can increase supply to bring prices down is a, is a myth. It's a furphy because a whole economy is reliant now upon property investment and speculation thanks to Howard's toxic legacy. So, yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer to me. Well, I think there's another issue too. Um, well, you mentioned uh, ministers with uh, negatively geared properties. I know Peter Dutton, the putative next mm. Prime Minister of Australia, has... <laughs> and, has one of, and one of the giant minds of this country. <laughs> <laughs> has, what is it, 20 negatively geared properties? Or oh, 20 million dollars worth of... That's 20 million dollars worth of negatively geared That's properties, disgusting. I think it might be. Um, so that tells you where he's coming from, yep, apart really from does. Bashing, bashing asylum seekers and refugees, and now... Um, um, Alan Joyce's of the world because they happen to be gay. Um, yeah, but I think yeah. the, the the question here too is how much of this privately invested uh, housing is not actually uh, being used, or how much of it uh, is, there are there are mm -hmm. no tenants in it. And I think that's an issue too that we could address by I think the uh, Victorian government has started to attempt to address this by having an unused tax on properties that don't have. Um, that aren't being utilised 
for rental purposes. Now, my my answer to that would be, I think that's an okay start, but we should be thinking about um, not only that, not only mandating the use of unoccupied hotels and motels for the 105,000 who are currently homeless, but also rent controls and, and a whole range of other programs and public housing as well. So there are many things we could do to address the housing crisis in Australia, but because they're not part of the neoliberal solution, they're not on the mainstream agenda. In fact, one of the contradictions is that they keep asking the sector which benefits from prices increasing uh, almost exponentially to provide the answers to affordable housing, and it does seem to be a slight contradiction. Yes, the sector that says, oh, look, I can make a couple of million quid here (laughs) 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 if this continues. But but then when it collapses, the sector that says, well, can you bail me out, please? Which is, of course, what happened during the global financial crisis in the US when the, the, the state stepped in not to protect people who were losing their homes, but to protect the, the providers of, uh, of finance, the, the major banks and major lending institutions and so forth, so basically protected Wall Street and not Main Street as the saying went. And that will happen again if the housing market in Australia collapses, which is a, a, a concern of, uh, of groups like the Reserve Bank and ASIC who've been actually saying we have a housing bubble in Australia and it could it could collapse. So there are ruling class figures who understand there is a threat, but of course their solutions don't come anywhere near to the solutions that I think will be effective and that we've discussed already. Yeah, in fact, but on the positive side of this argument, by the way, you'll, know that you'll be pleased to know that John Simon, that bloke who comes on telly pushing Aussie loans or whatever they're called, um, knocked back for his Point Piper mansion the other week, he knocked back $100 million for one mansion. That's not bad, is it? <laughs> A ah, hundred million. Now, if you and I worked for forty years at the average wage of eighty thousand, what are we going to get? Oh, yeah, we'll get we'll get <laughs> nowhere near that. We won't get close to to what do we get? Four million or something? We have to work more than seven days a week. It's well, practically we, not possible. We pointed oh, out we could work on Sundays at cut penalty rates. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone wants to. Um, yeah. It's twenty four seven world after all, John. Um, yeah. The uh, but in fact, we mentioned on the program last week there was a recent study that showed that um, the average rent in Sydney and Melbourne is about twenty five percent of the average wage. But the average wage they put they set it at something like eight one thousand eight hundred or something a week. Uh, yep. And it struck me that um, on that basis, if you were a, pro- a pensioner in the private market, then the rent would be at least 100% of your total income. Yeah, if you, that's a real issue that's occurring. Uh, of course. And if you're on the dole, then it's probably more like about 200%, which definitely would create a small liquidity problem. Yes, and so that forces you into some sort of group housing mm. or something along those lines, which if you're a the family on the dole, oh, or the street, yes, mm. so that take where I live in, in, in the ACT, there are about, I think, 1,800 people who are actually on the street, 5,000 uh, 5, who are homeless because they're sleeping on other people's couches and so forth, but of that 5,000, about 1,800 who are homeless, that is, they're sleeping on the street, and the government's spending uh, 1.5 Three billion over the next ten years on a tram between Canberra, between the Canberra Centre and one of the outlying suburbs, and I think it's a question of priorities. We could hail all of those one thousand eight hundred in the ACT immediately, 
by commandeering some of the vacant motels and hotels and some of the vacant properties that the government itself owns but hasn't been letting out because it doesn't have a program of fixing it up, or some of the vacant private rentals that uh, that continue to be vacant over a period of time because the return's not great enough. And I think that's a, a, an Australia-wide issue of we have, um, uh, well, as I said, 105 homeless people, 105,000 homeless people across Australia, many of whom are sleeping rough. And the question becomes, how do you address people who are sleeping rough? And what you're doing in Victoria is you've got the, the Melbourne City Council moving them on. Now, this is a completely wrong approach. You've got a whole range of solutions to homelessness, but moving them on is not the appropriate one. It's one of addressing the, the question of unemployment and question the question of social outcasts. Of, of, of being outcast from society, of providing a basic income for people to be able to live so that the dole is already, uh, I think, $140 a week below the recognised poverty line. Mm. And the pension is uh, slightly higher, but still not enough if you're in the private market to provide you even with a rental supplement with enough to be able to live adequately, having to make choices about paying the rent or buying food. Now, what sort of rich society like Australia forces people to make those choices? Just disgrace. And yeah. we could we could address this issue if we had the political will. And the political will will only come about if we, as activists, as leftists, as people who are fighting for a more just society, campaign around all of the issues that create the angst in our society around homelessness, around unemployment, around and against racism, around um, uh, higher wages, around more employment and so forth. These are all interconnected issues. They're a crisis of capitalism that is brewing at the moment that we're going to have to address as ordinary people in the near future. John, just we better move on, but your point about bailing out the banks reminds me, just here in Victoria at the moment, we're about to see the Hazelwood coal or power station closed down. Uh, there's a big scream going on about the the sustainable timber company that wants more timber or it's going to have to close down. And we had all the workers in Melbourne yesterday screaming about the government needs to save them. Um, it seems to me we do have to have transition programs for workers losing their jobs in those sort of industries. But uh, they always come to the conclusion that somehow the government's responsible for that and not the company that's that's heading off. Um, surely the company has some responsibility in these things. Uh, yes, and I think in, in the case of Hazelwood, it was uh, recently bought, or three years ago bought, by uh, a French company who've now decided that it's, that it's easier and more cost-effective to close it in the short term than in the long term. And my solution to this would be for... Uh, a long-term transition to using the skills of the workers in that industry to produce renewable energy. And so that would be a focus for me. And it's not, not such a pipe dream. Tax the rich and set up solar panels and wind farms in the, in the region where the skills of those workers could be used. Exactly. But in the short term... But in the short term, for those workers to take over Hazelwood, to occupy it and say that it can't be sold until there is a suitable transition for us to a, a, a better a better solution than just closing down Hazelwood. Now, part of the issue here is that, that you see the alternative that the government is now offering is the Snowy Mountains revitalised scheme of pumping water uphill to pump it downhill. Mm. Um, which, Using coal to pump it uphill, by the way. Yeah, the debate about that is 
um, a bit obscure to me. I, I, I can't determine whether they're using renewable energy to pump it uphill or whether they're going to use coal and uh, other non-renewable energy to pump it uphill. And I thought at first it was going to be renewable energy, but other people are now saying that it's going to be coal. So what's the point of using coal to pump energy uphill to pump it down? It doesn't have any impact on uh, the use of coal-fired power stations. Um, but long term, I mean, the coal the coal industry is dead. But again, it's like the banking industry. It is a major, major, major um, institution within capitalism at the moment. And so governments do whatever they can to protect it because of its power. I think the ultimate power that that, that can challenge the the thrall the thrall of coal over governments is you and me and ordinary workers who will have to understand that coal is a dying industry, that we cannot continue to prop it up, that we have to move to renewable energy. I mean, that has to be done in the, in the medium to short term. I think BZE and uh, the Melbourne Institute uh, a few years ago came out with a plan to moving to totally, totally renewable energy in Australia in 10 years, and that would cost $400 billion. Now, that's a lot of money. But, you know, <laughs> uh, a 1% uh, tax on... The top 10% brings in, and uh, not $4 billion, but $40 billion. Um, I, I got my figures wrong. Um, you know, increasing the top marginal tax rate brings in, uh, brings in billions. Cracking down on tax avoidance already would bring in billions, but unfortunately the tax office now under the new commissioner or the, the, the three years old commissioner is focusing on workplace expenses or, or, you know, you and me rather than on tax avoidance. So... We have to move to renewable energy, and gas is not a solution. Uh, you, we can see the problems with gas, and the gas, the gas industry, with the wonderful market that we've got now, where if we are selling gas to Japan, and yet we've got a fake crisis of gas in gas supply in Australia, where energy prices, the gas energy is going to explode in its price. So it'll be cheaper to buy back the gas that we've exported to Japan than it will be to use the gas that's being produced in Australia. Now, I read something in the conversation today about gas which said that there's a fake crisis that really the gas suppliers are a monopoly or an oligopoly, the six major gas suppliers, and they've been talking up a gas crisis to basically increase their prices and also to justify uh, a move to fracking. And that really what we need to do is impose a supply requirement on them that they have to supply the home market, which every other gas-producing nation does, and there's the solution. Instead of the nonsense of the market that we've got at the moment, which is, I oh, will buy our own gas back from Japan at cheaper prices, and we're supplying it to Japan. Seriously? That's the way the market works? Oh, well, wow. the, the invisible hand's working brilliantly there. So I think, really, the question is, again, we've got a monopoly suppliers or an oligopoly of suppliers who are manipulating the market, and we have to challenge them. Yes, one we can, can only do that through mass action ourselves. One can only assume the gas in the ground they say they can't get their hands on because the terrible socialist state governments are stopping them. That must, <laughs> that must be the gas that's marked for domestic use only, and the other isn't. Um, yes, and, and as uh, the conversation, an article in the conversation said about this, we have an oversupply of gas in Australia. Mm. There's an oversupply in the world, and so this gas is this gas crisis is a is a, a fake crisis exactly. built to built to justify 
doubling the price of gas over the last few years. Um, we really need state intervention and we need to force the state to intervene to force them to lower the price of uh, gas. It's not a, not rocket science. We've got state governments that can do this. but um, And that would benefit millions of Australians. Millions. Yeah, John, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, but we'll uh, we'll, no, we'll doubtless talk to you again through the year and um, and keep catching up on these things. Yes, lovely to talk to you. Right. Thanks, John. That Thanks was great. Thanks for the chance. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for your time. Okay. John Passant there, who's, um, he lectures in tax law, etc., up there in Canberra, and he, um, he's, a former, as we say, a former assistant tax commissioner, but you can work out why he isn't anymore. Um, <laughs> you can't, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's that. Look, we're going to take a quick... No, we're not, because we, we'll announce next week's program. Now, Lynn, you've got... Um, you've got your mic on now, Lynn. It's on. Um, next week, you've got a... Yes, a, a, um, a very, very tricky topic. Um, it's about age discrimination in the workplace, and it isn't just ageing people, it's all, older people. It's also for um, youth, which apparently Professor Philip Taylor is going to address. He's going to be one of our guests in the studio next week. And also um, Melbourne-based Marilyn King, who established the Willing Older Workers Organisation, and they give practical help to people who are facing unemployment. So it should be a very interesting program. Thank you so much, Lynn, for doing great work today. First time on the panel. And thanks, Andy, for keeping an eye on things. Bit nerve wracking, but thanks very much. It'll be better next time, hopefully. Okay, because it is a fifth Wednesday next my next week. By the way, that's why we're having that sort of program. And the following week, we're back to the first Wednesday in transport again. So, shall look forward cycle, to the it. cycle starts the all over. Cycle again. goes on. Yes. Okay, that's it. Say goodbye, someone. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, bye everybody. See you next week. Next